Well, we are uh, going to continue moving forward here in uh, Genesis and Bereshit as we uh, continue walking through uh, the first book of the Bible. And we are in the middle of the story of Noah. And uh, as, uh, as we've seen, that, uh, you know, it's very important to remember that the, the text tells us why this, uh, this event is taking place, why we have the flood. Uh, and it says, if you go back to chapter 6, uh, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And then he says, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky. I am sorry that I have made them. And so that is the situation of the world. We talked last week and the week before about that. We uh, are going to move on here. But this is very important to always remember when we read the account of the flood that there's reasoning behind it, that God is not capricious, He's not uh, just doing things uh, for the sake of uh, some uh, a strange uh, hedonistic need uh, that He has, but uh, it is a judgment, uh, a specific judgment uh, on, uh, on, the, on the world. And then we, we learned about Noah and, of course, how... God found and or provided Noah, right? Uh, a savior, one might say, one who is a messianic figure, uh, one who is righteous, blameless, uh, one who walked with God, right? And so he is going to be the way that God's promise uh, to man of being fruitful and multiplying is going to take place through Noah and his sons. And now we come uh, to chapter 7, and actually we could say we can begin in the last verse of chapter 6. Uh, in chapter 6, we have uh, the uh, narrative of the uh, ark itself, right? And remember what we said about the ark? that the, the word ark is a unique word, and it's only used referring to two things in the Bible, and none of them is the ark of the covenant, Okay, that's a different word altogether. It's just in English, the traditional, uh, the traditional rendering uh, for the Hebrew word is ark. Uh, but it is also or the same word that's used for basket or the receptacle that, no, that uh, Moses was placed in so that he would live. Okay. Uh, and uh, and I think uh, you know, frankly, that is uh, you know that is significant. Uh, this uh, this ark, as we'll see, is very interesting. You know, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but there's no navigation in it. You know, there, there's no like uh, the skipper, you know, doing the thing there, uh, turning right and left. Uh, there's uh, uh, what Noah does basically is get in it, right? But uh, we don't read anywhere that he's steering it, right? And uh, so uh, really what we are seeing, this is all about the grace of God in preserving mankind through this individual and his family. Uh, very important. In fact, in this whole narrative, there are not gods and there are not storm gods and different gods duking it out and fighting each other and it is just God, the God of Israel, the one and only God who is uh, bringing this uh, to pass. And so we read at the very end of chapter 6, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And we see that several times, that uh, what Noah did was be obedient. Uh, and in his day, that was quite unique. He was the only one. He was obedient. Uh, 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 to uh, God. And frankly, he doesn't speak until after it's all over. We don't read a word coming out of Noah's mouth until it's over. 
And one of the reasons, I think, for that is that what's happening here is that this is all about what God is doing in this world. There's no negotiation. Uh, there's no uh, asking a question, but that God is doing the work in this world and he has found this righteous, blameless man uh, to be obedient, uh, uh, to be able to continue to propagate human beings and, and the world. So now in chapter 7, uh, we're going to have more detail. And in a way, it's kind of like, it's kind of reminiscent of the first two chapters of, uh, of Genesis, where you have the creation, and then you have in chapter 2, uh, it goes into much more detail uh, on the uh, creation of man. Here you have in chapter 6 and 7, you have the, uh, the building of the ark in detail. Uh, uh, and then at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, we have the basic commands, but then uh, after the first five verses, it goes into great detail. Okay? So we read here now at the beginning of chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So again, we see that uh, uh, it's not that Noah is able to enter the ark uh, because, he, uh, because he did righteous acts, because he built the ark. No, because this was the kind of man that he was, that God was able to use him in a marvelous way. Okay? And uh, it's interesting that, uh, you know, we don't read that Noah was uh, a shipbuilder by trade. Probably not. Business would not have been good, probably. Right? Uh, nor do we read that he had any expertise in anything. We don't know. But we see that he's obedient. He follows the directions. Uh, he shows up. He participates when God calls him. Like, Hineni. Like Isaiah, I'm here. Send me. Right? God finds Noah and, uh, and uh, calls him to do the most extraordinary work. Build the ark and so on. So now we read, You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and the animals that are not clean, two, a male and a female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And then we read this like refrain again. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him to do. All right. So it could have stopped there. But now, beginning in verse 6, we read uh, just a little bit more detail about this. But first, we can say a few things. Isn't it interesting? Whoa, clean animals. Where does that come from? Right? We don't read about clean and unclean animals. There's no Torah, per se, yet. Uh, there's uh, no official sacrificial system yet. But evidently, animals were understood to be clean and unclean, going all the way back, perhaps, to the beginning, or at least we see here to Noah's day. And it tells us, the fact that there are unclean animals that go into the ark tells us that the cleanness or uncleanness of an animal does not mean it, it is moral or immoral or unethical or ethical uh, or the animal is sinful or the animal is no good. You know, let's just say God loves pigs. Just don't eat them, right? Okay? Uh, and you know, nobody was eating animals at this time. Remember that. That these, this is not dietary laws when it talks about bringing clean animals and unclean animals. It's not referring to them as food, all right? It's referring to them as, most likely as being able to be offered to God, but not as food yet. That doesn't happen until after the flood. They're all vegetarians at this point in history. All right. Uh, now, 
Uh, it's interesting that um, it says here to bring uh, seven sets, right, of the uh, clean animals. Seven sets uh, of these animals, right? Now, one of the reasons, this is a very practical reason, and that is we read after the fact that, that some of these animals are going to be offered, right? And so haven't some ever asked in a Bible study, well, if they offer animals... How can they reproduce? There's seven sets, okay? Uh, and that's very important. Now, of course, I, uh, needless to say, when you read this, it kind of jumps out at you. Like in verse, well, it says, by sevens, male and female, uh, and then of the animals that are not clean, a uh, male and female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female. And then it says, to keep offspring alive, on the face of all the earth. Okay, so that tells us several different things. One is something we already said, and that is that the goal is to keep offspring alive. The goal is to be able to reproduce, as we read back in Genesis. Okay, that's what's happening here. Uh, but also, one could say, because some of these are going to be offered, seven sets are necessary. But then there's something else. Then you see uh, seven again. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. So, the, you know, it's very interesting. Just like at the creation, you see uh, the predominant number. There's a number of numbers here, uh, but the predominance of uh, seven. You know, seven days of waiting for the flood, uh, seven days waiting after the flood, uh, and also the symmetry of numbers, just numbers, is fascinating here, right? You have 40 days of the flood, then you have 150 days of the water triumphing, prevailing, right? And then 150 days of the water waning, and then another 40-day wait, and then seven more days, and another seven more days. So the symmetry of the numbers tells us something. Not just numbers are interesting, okay? You don't want to miss the forest by, by uh, looking at every tree here, you know what I mean? Don't miss the big picture. But the numbers do tell us something, a couple of things. One is uh, the, the sevens are interesting. Uh, just like, you know, the week of creation, uh, you have seven days. And not only uh, would we say uh, seven is a number of completion, or even a perfection, but it is orderly. It's orderly. That the creation is orderly, and the unraveling of creation is orderly. This is not that uh, there's a, a low pressure somewhere in the Atlantic near the Bahamas, uh, and now, oh no, there's going to be a hurricane. Okay? Uh, this is not based on weather patterns. All right, or the temperature of the earth, and or any of that. Right, this is a very specific judgment that God is bringing—a supernatural judgment that God is bringing—and it is orf, it is carefully planned, and it is orderly. God is not capricious. He's he's not doing this to get back at man. He is sad. He is grieving. But he does find a man, and there is an orderly way for the creation to continue. Uh, and, and so that's very important. What God does, big lesson, just a, what God does is orderly. What we do when we sin and we rebel, we create disorder. Disorder, a lack of harmony. When we look at things, and it's very ironic, I th it's kind of, it really is a paradox, because we look at the world, and we see things that don't make sense, and what do we say? God, what are you doing? When the disorder comes as a result of our rebellion, not necessarily our personal sin, like what I do, you know, now something's going to happen that doesn't make sense to me, No. But the cumulative effect of sinfulness in this world brings every disorder that you see. 
Everything that happens that doesn't seem to make sense happens as a result of the rebellion and sinfulness of man. And so the world is in chaos before the flood. It's in chaos. And so what God does is he creates an orderly judgment. And you know, the day is going to come when the order of creation will be restored. And while I'm going on a little tangent here, you know, when we talk about wisdom, the wisdom of God, or wisdom literature in the Bible, uh, and we define it, we like to say, knowledge applied. It's knowledge applied. That's nice. It is. It's taking the knowledge of God and applying it in a, in a right way. But it's all related to creation. I don't know if you're familiar with that or aware of that. The next time uh, we have uh, teaching uh, the, wisdom, uh, of, uh, the wisdom books of the, uh, of the Tanakh, or even in the writings class, we talk about this. A little MSI plug there, right? Uh, we talk about the fact that the wisdom of God is teaching orderliness. Orderliness in a world of disorder. So like the book of Proverbs is about, it's like a vision of orderliness. It's how it's supposed to work right? But we know, let's face it, we all know whether we've ever verbalized this or not. Sometimes the book of Proverbs doesn't happen, right? And so what about Proverbs? Uh, it doesn't always happen just the way it's supposed, just the way it says, right? That is a vision of an orderly world. And so the more that we live God's way, God's will, another way to say that is to live an orderly life. And the more we live an orderly life, the more we make a difference in our own life, the lives of our family, and the lives of this world. What Job is about, what Ecclesiastes is about, is about living orderly in a disorderly world. How do you make sense of it? Job, it has to do with grieving and sadness and bad things happening. Ecclesiastes has to do with more like the, the way of the world, the thinking of the world. And the way the world works, how do I live orderly in a disorderly world? That's what biblical wisdom is. Living orderly in a disorderly world. Because God is a God of order. And so one might say, God gave Noah wisdom to build the ark. And for what animals to bring on the ark? This is orderliness. Where does disorder come? Disorder comes on the other side with drunkenness and disobedience of sons and pride and more disorder, then God has to once again intervene to bring order to the chaos. That's why when we look at the world the, the way it is, it's, it's full of disorder. But God has called us not to live in chaos, not to be pinballs you know, in this world, just reacting to whatever happens, whatever opinion is out there on Facebook or whatever else you're influenced by, right? But we are, our vision is Yeshua is our king and he's given us an orderly way of life, see? Uh, so God is indeed a God of order. We see that with, with symbolized by this variety of numbers and uh, the proliferation of sevens, okay? All right, now we're going to come back to that uh, in a little bit. All right, well, let's keep going here. All right, so now we, uh, we come to verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth, okay? You know what's interesting about that is, is that Noah has children before the flood. His sons are definitely old enough to have children, they're like 100 years old. You know, they're not like kids going in the yard. Come on, boys, right? Or like young married couple, like 20 years old or something. Noah is 600, all right? So his sons are, all, in our world, we call them old. But they have children after the, after the flood. It's just kind of an interesting thing. Noah has his children before. Uh, it might tell us something about those three boys. Uh, and, uh, but they have children after the flood. Okay, that we'll talk about maybe weeks from now. Okay. All right, so uh, now I will say something else about the numbers. Uh, when it says Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth, it tells us a couple of things. One is it gives us a time frame that this is real. It's telling us that this is part, this is a historical event, not some mythological 
uh, event, okay? And also, it's kind of like portraying Noah, you might say, like a king. Because oftentimes when kings would come to reign, it would say, this king was so many years old when he began to reign. But here it says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Remember, I think we said that very important that the wives play a very important role because uh, God uh, uh, promised that the blessing of being fruitful and multiply would continue. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Moses by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Moses. You read it over and over again, as God had commanded Moses, as God, I mean, Noah. You know, they have, cer- they have certain facial similarities, so I mix them up all the time, okay? Have I been saying Moses like for the last 20 minutes? I hope not. Okay. They went into the ark to Noah, right, by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Noah did as he was told, and also Noah isn't going around lassoing every animal and hunting them down, but God is bringing them to Noah. God is the one who's doing this work. Noah is following directions, okay? And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, in other words, telling us this is a real-time event, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights." And this uh, clearly uh, is a reminder, goes back to the creation, how there were waters above and waters below. And so in the creation, right, God created waters above and waters below, and now he is like uncreating, decreating, whatever the word would be, taking it back, so to speak, uh, you know, destroying what he had created, and going back to the beginning, like starting over again. So uh, clearly, when we see the waters of the deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open, it is a description of how the world was uh, before there was land and God uh, uh, creating the animals and the birds and so on and, and uh, human beings. And the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. There's no word here that says, and there was a big storm. Isn't that kind of interesting? It doesn't say, and there was a big storm. No, this was a, uh, a rain, a torrential rain that continued for 40 days and 40 nights. This was a work specifically of God. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. So again, it's like Genesis 1 and 2. We read it. Now we're reading it more in detail. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle and their kind, just like in the creation, what God created and their kind, right? Now, He's saying, sending specific ones into the ark. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, and all sorts of birds. And they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered the breath of life. Again, we read that in Genesis, Right? that what God breathes life in, uh, everything that dwells on land, okay? And they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. God is the one doing the work. If you like to underline things in your Bible, 
it's not a bad thing to underline as God commanded him or as God commanded Noah and seeing that refrain over and over again and the two by twos and all flesh recognizing by, by these repetitions of these words, we see there's, a, there's an emphasis uh, on these things. And then it says, and the Lord closed it behind him. The Lord shut the door. How did they close the door of the ark, right? God shut the door. God protected them, right? God told Noah what to build. God brought the animals to him. God tells him and his, and his sons and their wives, get in, right? And then God shuts the door. God protects them from this judgment. All right. Now, here's a question that the Bible doesn't answer. And so I'm only throwing it out there because it's an interesting question. What about fish? Right? Isn't that an interesting thing? What about fish? There's no big aquariums uh, in, uh, in the ark. doesn't say a word about fish. Right? So there's a few things that are uh, interesting about that. Again, uh, anything that anybody says about it is just an idea because the text doesn't tell us. All right? I, I, but we could say, uh, perhaps, that as we read in, um, in, a variety of, um, in a variety of places in the Bible, that uh, the land is polluted. The land becomes polluted uh, because of, uh, because of the, the sin of, uh, of human beings. And so perhaps... What is, perhaps what is being judged is everything that dwells on land. Perhaps at that time it was the animals that they became a chaotic as well and ferocious. Isn't it interesting that you read that in the end, when there is order, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Evidently, that's how it's supposed to be, that the animal world I, is at peace. Even what we would call today natural predators, you know, are, are at peace with, with their prey, right? And so evidently, uh, the ferocious uh, personalities and tendencies of dangerous animals or of all animals comes as a result of the rebellion of mankind in this world. And so it is quite interesting as we read the word land is repeated over and over again. Whatever dwells in the land, all flesh on the land. So clearly, uh, that, is what is being, uh, that is what is being judged. Also, probably lots of marine life died in the flood with just all the different, the waters from above, the waters below. And, you know, but um, uh, you can talk to uh, a scientist about that, and that's, uh, that's fine. But it is an interesting thing that it is what dwells on the land, the flesh that dwells on the land, animals and people uh, and insects and all that, that is what is being judged, evidently. And that is what is being saved. All right. Okay. Uh, verse 17. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. It floated on the water. Okay. Didn't capsize, uh, sink. Okay. Uh, and the water prevailed, and that's very interesting. The water triumphed. It's the way you can you can uh, you can actually uh, translate that. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher. And the mountains were covered, and all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. It's kind of in the order of their creation we read about the judgment. So there is an eye going back to Genesis 1 in this judgment. And all that was on dry land, and all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animal, 
to creeping thing, to birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed, triumphed upon the earth, 150 uh, and 150 days. And so that is a very sobering story. Of course, it continues in chapter 8, but it is certainly a very, uh, very sobering story. It's kind of reminiscent a little bit of, a uh, little bit not only of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, but also in a way of Genesis 3. You know, uh, inside the ark, in a way, parallels inside of the garden. Outside of the ark, parallels outside of the garden. Inside there is salvation, outside there is not. Inside there is immunity from disaster, outside there is inevitable death. So the ark is spared and the world, the land, uh, is, uh, is doomed. But as we said, this is an orderly judgment. And it is a great reminder, as I said at the beginning to us, of that God is a God of order and all the disorder and rebellion that we see in the world comes as a result of sin. Now, there are plenty of verses. Now, we'll be looking at chapter 8 and 9 and 10, you know, and so on. But there are plenty of verses, plenty of places in the Bible where we know that this was not the end of the story. You know, we'll see next, next uh, time uh, how God remembers, as we see the beginning of chapter 8, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle and, and so on, and the water begins to wane and is restrained, you know, subside and, and so on. But it isn't a new heaven and a new earth. We come to see that it's same old, same old in a way. And God promises that he will never destroy the world again. It says, I will never destroy the world by a flood. But God's promise of mankind propagating is a promise uh, that God makes going all the way to the beginning of creation and continues in the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we saw last week, there is going to be a new heaven and a, and a new earth. It is, it's never going to be the end of the end. Okay, according to the word of God, uh, and that is God's promise uh, 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 to us. However, boy, we read about some really bad times to come in the prophets. You go to a prophet like, if you go to the Z's, but not Zechariah, but you go to Zephaniah, it's really pretty rough, okay? Really pretty rough with Zephaniah, okay? We don't like to read Zephaniah too much because it's kind of dark and dreary, a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Although we do sing a song from it, the good part. But it talks here about the day of the Lord. It talks about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, in that day... It's very interesting. Uh, it refers to aspects of the end. Okay, It can refer to the whole, everything that takes place at the end. It, sometimes it can refer to the beginning of the end, the middle of the end, or the end of the end. Some people like to use a Jewish day as a good illustration of the day of the Lord. That, you know, the day begins when the sun goes down. So you have dusk, you have darkness, you have dawn, and then you have daytime. And all of those uh, 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 pictures uh, could relate to the day of the Lord. But what we see in uh, the prophet Zephaniah, if you go down, for example, to verse 14, it's speaking about a day of judgment, another day of judgment. You know, it's interesting uh, that uh, when the world became so chaotic, God brought a flood and saved one man and his family to propagate the world. But we know when we study the uh, eschatology of the Bible, you know, the, uh, the end times and all of that, that there's going to be another great and terrible day of, of judgment coming on this world. Uh, and it's interesting because the prophets 
While they preached the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity, oftentimes went beyond that and were trying to convey that, uh, you know, these uh, judgments are leading up to a, a great, a great judgment. So you read in verse 14 of Zephaniah chapter 1. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. Doesn't sound like Nebuchadnezzar to me. Okay? For he will make a complete end Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. And it goes on and on. And I could, we could all look at passages in every single prophet that gives this kind of description. And we know, we know from uh, whether uh, we look at some of the, in the Brich HaRashah, uh, when you read uh, some of the... Uh, some of the words of Paul, especially that he writes to, Tif Tif to Timothy about difficult times coming, you know, the, uh, 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 the great difficulties uh, that will be uh, uh, in the world and so on and so forth. And then Yeshua talks about it. You read, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, But realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of self rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these." So he's talking, yes, he's, uh, certainly the last days began at the resurrection of Yeshua, no doubt. But he does seem to be speaking about the future. In the last days, difficult times will come. And certainly he tells them, tells people to, you know, uh, you see it in the world today, but uh, it's not going to get any better. And isn't it interesting that, uh, you know, when you read the Bible, the world is not going to get better. It's not going to get better. Progress, technology, yes, are helpful, but morally, ethically, making the world a better place, no one has quite figured that out yet. Now, temporally speaking, yes, we can. Certainly. Uh, this is not a fatalistic uh, a, 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 a kind of uh, a thinking here. No, certainly we're called to be the tip of the iceberg. We're called to be the remnant. We're called to live orderly in the disorderly world. So that means making a difference in this world. But recognize that just like when Yeshua came, the world rejected him, but it was all part of the process of redemption. So in the same way, the world is not going to get any better, but God is in the process of calling out a people unto himself, the Messiah followers, yes, to make a difference in this world, yes, to be light in the midst of darkness, but recognize that it is only Yeshua who's going to bring the change, the ultimate change to this world. And even, you know, in the rabbinic literature, uh, it, uh, it, it almost sounds like a, a Woody Allen uh, a, a kind of thing, where you have sayings of rabbis that saying they're looking forward to the Alam Haba, but they don't want to be there because of the great difficulty that will usher it in. It's kind of interesting because in Matthew chapter 24, Yeshua even references the days of Noah. The disciples in Matthew 24 ask him several questions. So he's answering several different questions in Matthew 24. 
right? Uh, Yeshua came out from the temple and was going away. This is in verse 1. When his disciples came to the point, uh, came up to the temple, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Okay? And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And so he's answering a lot of questions. But you read here, uh, beginning in verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows. I would suggest that even the use of the word day here has a reference of some sort to the day of the Lord. Uh, as this passage continues. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Remember what the disciples asked Yeshua uh, in Acts chapter 1, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, basically, no one knows ex except the Father. The consummation, his return, the wolf laying down with the lamb, new heaven, new earth. All of that, all those great things. Messiah sitting on his throne in Jerusalem. All the nations coming, you know, to Jerusalem to hear the Torah from Yeshua. Only the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Business as usual, just doing their thing, you know, not thinking about any kind of uh, cataclysmic judgment, but waking up, eating breakfast, right, going to work, uh, doing their thing, eating, drinking, getting married, living life. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Now, of course, volumes have been written about is taken good or bad? Or is left good or bad? And I would just simply say, if you go to the, as we like to say, into the nearest antecedent verb, uh, that um, notice in verse 40, it looks like, not verse 40, uh, verse 39. They are the people who are eating and drinking and not understanding, right? And will be judged in this cataclysmic judgment at the end, right? So it says, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So I would suggest that take is not good. That actually left behind is good. <laughs> oh, no. Say it ain't so. Okay. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Wow. So when we look at Noah, when we go back and we look at Noah, it's very interesting. Yes, we understand. We love the Lord. We see that, that this day, you know, is going to come. But isn't it interesting? He tells his disciples, be ready. It's not a case of ho-hum, when's the judgment coming so we can get it over with, Right? that there is this, there is again another paradox, one of the many beautiful paradoxi, no, paradoxes, I'll go with it, of the Bible. And that is, yes, we know that we are like Noah. 
like in the ark. Yet at the very same time, Yeshua warns us, don't get lackadaisical in the way you're doing things. Don't take anything for granted. Yes, we have an assurance of our salvation, but it's not something to be taken for granted. So he says to us, we need to be ready. Every single day of our lives, it might be the 600th year of Noah's life, so to speak. We don't know when that day's coming. We know, okay, it's not going to be a flood, and there's lots of things we read in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, here in, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, and other places as well about the judgments, uh, and all those passages, Zephaniah and Isaiah and other places, how the world is going to be turned upside down. There will be cataclysmic disasters, uh, of, you know, natural disasters, wars, horrible events taking place, but it will not be the end. It will not be the end, for the Lord will indeed return. We'll talk about that at another time, but it is not the end, and so important for us to recognize. But it is also important for us not to be lackadaisical, and that is what these passages are, uh, are uh, uh, teaching. So he goes on to say in verse 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master puts in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave when his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites weeping shall there be and the gnashing of teeth. Then you can read it on your own. Chapter 25 is a series of parables about being ready. There's stories about being ready. So the question for us when we read the story of Noah, is it just an interesting story? Is it something that we just need to prove scientifically and, and be able to understand the ark and be able to answer every skeptic's question about the flood? Or when we read about the flood, should we be thinking about Matthew 24 and thinking about our own day? For we are living in days like Noah. And we need to be ready. Yes, we need to. Now, that doesn't mean we need to sell everything and go live out in bunkers somewhere. Okay? That's what, that's what the world does in a certain respect. We are not called to be fearful. We are called to serve. And here's another paradox. The darker the world gets, the brighter the gospel message becomes. The darker the world gets, the more opportunity we have. We are not called to go and hide. I don't read that in the Bible. We are called to proclaim the name of Yeshua. Now, not beat people over the head with the Bible. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was telling me about how wonderful it was getting into arguments with people and getting kicked out of restaurants and this. And I thought, how many people have you led to Messiah? I asked, I said, how many people have you led? He said, none. He said, maybe you might want to try a different tactic. Because, you know, that's what the goal is. That's the goal. People coming to faith and knowing the Messiah. And not just to say that I led somebody to Messiah, but it's like putting people on the ark. It's like yelling, uh, you know, uh, the flood's coming, the flood's coming, get on the ark. That's what Yeshua is saying. And that's what we're saying. And so we need to ask ourselves, Okay, I need to make sure I know the Lord, but not only that I made a profession of faith, but I'm walking with God. But I'm walking with God because the days are not easy, as we all know, more difficult than they used to be, right? And may we do all that we can to share the good news of Messiah with people, to, so to speak, metaphorically, get people on that ark because the waters are definitely getting choppier and choppier, aren't they? And you know, isn't it interesting, just in finishing up, 
Sometimes I, I say, in talking to people, I'm not really thinking about Noah, but I guess it, it kind of works, and that is God never promises us, even now, a bed of roses. He never promises us that the waters are going to be calm, right? What Yeshua does is provide the boat, right? So that we can navigate the choppy waters of life and not sink, right? Well, that's what we say about now. What will it be indeed in the future, right? And so we don't know when that day is. And the last thing is, isn't it interesting? I think it's interesting that again, you have uh, sevens at the beginning and then you have a seven at the end. And uh, a time, you know, of a great tribulation, a time of great tyranny, a time uh, of a great chaos, that, that God himself and Messiah Yeshua will come and finally deliver this world. And that is when there will be peace. And that is when the wolf will lay down with the lamb. And that is when all of that will happen. And so in the meantime, let us be a shining light don't put a, a basket over your light, as Yeshua told us in the Sermon on the Mount, because the days are indeed dark. Let us take every opportunity, even at the peril of our reputations and perhaps even of our very lives, to be a testimony of Yeshua, to be a light. That's what we're called to be as a community. And let us be sharing that message so that people can, so to speak, get in the ark, you know, and be delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, God, for Noah. We thank you, Lord, uh, for uh, how you delivered Noah and his family and, and the animals and all that. But Lord, when we read it, may we get a little, a little uncomfortable May we realize it's not just a, a little story, you know, a bedtime story. But may we be a little uncomfortable and realize, Lord, that the day will come when you will again bring judgment, a specific judgment on this world. No, you're not going to destroy all of mankind. No, it's not going to be uh, a flood like that. But it will be clearly a judgment. And Lord, we do pray, God, that we indeed um, would be spared, uh, God, as we know you, as we embrace you, so that whether, whether you come today or if it's in a hundred years, Lord, we have the assurance of knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with you, that no matter what happens, we're present with you. And as the world gets darker and darker and more chaotic, may we be more godly, making right choices, walk with wisdom, and live orderly according to your will and your way, God. And may people see it, desire it, and embrace you, Lord. We pray in Messiah's name.